This is, of course, the last Sunday just prior to the release of the much-anticipated film by Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ, which has sparked much controversy already about his professed Christianity and the gospel message, charges of the film's supposed anti-Semitism, Gibson's own particular religious views, including his pre-Vatican II Catholicism and a whole host of strange questions about how evangelicals are jumping on the bandwagon of wholehearted support of the film are fueling immense interest in the last week of our Lord's life. It's really amazing, isn't it? How this interest in our Lord's life is coming about in these days. This is an amazing week and undoubtedly even over the next few months of emphases on the depiction of Christ's crucifixion for millions of movie-going unbelievers who will view this film. An unbelievable opportunity to talk to people about the true nature of who really killed Jesus Christ and to answer the question of why Christ had to die is before the watching America. The problem with Mel Gibson's film, as I said, is that it doesn't explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. It only attempts to depict it. What I want to do this morning is to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I want to do is, in the wonderful providence of God, is for you and I to turn in our Bibles to the gospel of Romans, that is, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, and explain to you what the movie doesn't, the good news of the passion of the Christ. Within a very similar pagan culture like ours, the Apostle Paul in the first century was also occupied with the question of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ which was accomplished on the cross of Christ, the same thing which is being depicted on the silver screen of the 21st century. And Paul's answer to both the believers and unbelievers in Rome about this good news was a most profound one. Listen to it in Romans 1, 1 1-7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we last met two Sundays ago, I told you, 
that there were three key features or facets to Paul's gospel presentation here to the Roman church. The first we covered in detail that last time, the gospel proclamations man. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, the good news of God. You remember I said that he was a servant, that he was called, and that he was set apart. He was the gospel proclamations man. We saw that in detail. And the second facet or feature of this gospel's proclamation is its message. Not just the man, but the message. And that is seen for us in verses 2 through 5. And there are four elements here that I want you to see. The promise, the prophecy, the pronouncement, and the power. The promise, the prophecy, or prophecies, the pronouncement, and the power. It was promised, it was prophesied, it was pronounced, and it was powered. Look at verse 2, the first part. The gospel message is promised. Paul says that he was set apart, the end of verse 1, for the good news or the gospel of God, verse 2a, which he, that is God, promised. God promised it. He promised the gospel message. In other words, the message of the gospel which Paul preached is articulated in verses 2 through 5, and he says, God promised it. Paul says, I was set apart for the gospel, the good news, and he's been tasked by God to proclaim this good news, this good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, he says, Christianity isn't some Johnny-come-lately religion. It was promised. And it was promised by someone, and that someone is none other than God Himself. All the way back in the Old Testament, God had a plan. And that plan included the redemption of His people. Look back for a moment with me, all the way back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. You want to know where the gospel began? In Genesis chapter 3... The Lord God Himself, according to verse 14, said to the serpent, who of course, as we know, deceived Eve, not Adam, but Eve, even though Adam, of course, was ultimately charged as the leader with his sin, Eve was quite deceived, fell into transgression. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, the woman emblematically speaking, we suggest Israel, 
He shall bruise your head, a reference ultimately to Christ, and you shall bruise His heel. Christ shall, in essence, bruise the head, and you shall bruise His heel. Christ, a reference ultimately to the very seed of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, what has been called here the proto-euangelion, or the gospel before the gospel. Satan will bruise Christ on the heel, but Christ shall crush Satan's head. The gospel in seed form is mentioned right here and takes full shape as Paul articulates right in Romans. It's promised by God beforehand, long beforehand, way back in Genesis, even for before time began. This is the gospel before the gospel. In fact, it even goes farther back than that, folks, according to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 says the gospel even goes back before time. Christ shall crush Satan's head. Christ might crush Satan's heel, but ultimately Christ shall crush Satan's head. The proto-euangelion, the gospel message is going to be promised, and that promise goes all the way back even before Time began, and then in time, and then Paul comes along and he says, I was set apart even from my mother's womb. It was promised by God. He promised it beforehand. There was a promise, and God was going to fulfill His promise. And Paul says, here it is, this promise of the gospel. It is promised by God. And look, secondly, it's also prophesied. Verse 2b, it was promised beforehand through His prophets. The gospel message is prophesied. The prophecy of the good news of salvation in Christ. It's rooted and grounded in the proclamation message of the prophets. It has a continuity. It's predicted by the prophets of old. It's not some Johnny-come-lately religion. It's not some new deal. You know, all of the confusion, the apparent confusion when Jesus came onto the scene in Palestine and then on into Jerusalem. It wasn't due to anything that Jesus caused per se. It was because His contemporaries didn't understand their Old Testament, the Old Testament Scriptures about Messiah coming. They didn't understand it. It spoke of Messiah. It spoke of His coming unto His people. The coming good news. You look at Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 or Isaiah 52 7. It talks about the good news. Yes, it talks about the good news of Babylon's defeat of Assyria. But oh, it's looking even beyond that. It's talking about a day when Messiah would come. In fact, you remember when Jesus walked into the synagogue and Isaiah's scroll was opened up and he began to read of Isaiah's prophecy and he closed the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant. And what did he say? This prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they were all just shocked. In essence, he was saying, I am the fulfillment of that very thing and it has occurred in your hearing today. I am He. 
Isaiah 60 verse 6 even speaks about the good news. The good news of the Word of God. The good news of the Gospel. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. And many other Old Testament scriptures talk about the very fulfillment of the Messiah of God. The whole Old Testament is pointing Christologically to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And these prophets were God's instruments because the text says it was through His prophets. Do you see it there? Which He, God, promised beforehand through His prophets. They were God's instruments. And notice it also says it was codified in the Holy Scriptures. They spoke and then it was written down, it was codified in the Holy Scriptures. God's spokesmen were His instruments to prophesy of a coming day when Messiah would redeem His people from their sins. And that word became a written word, the very written word of God. That's, by the way, why Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, you can look at the book of Acts, for instance, and the apostles' sermons are filled with allusions to the Old Testament, each explaining how Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic word. In fact, this is so wonderful. You have to see this. Look at the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. This is so wonderful. Luke 24, verse 13. This is so marvelous. You want to see how Christ used the Old Testament to save time? We, we don't have time. Maybe this is my edit. We don't have time to look back at the Old Testament. We'll let Jesus summarize it for us. Verse 13, Luke 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, Luke 24, 13. And verse 14 says, And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. God was veiling somehow their eyes from recognizing Christ, the Messiah. And He said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered Him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, he was incredulous. And he said to them, what things? By the way, what's he saying here? Does he not know? Is this an open theism kind of verse? Of course he knows. He's just drawing them out, right? Just drawing them out. What things? Tell me. Tell me, this is an instructive what things. And they said to him, concerning Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped 
that he was the one to redeem Israel. What are they doing? They're falling right into his trap, right? Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. You know, it's amazing to me. You know what they've just done? They've explained the gospel. They've explained the very gospel. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. You know what they did? They just explained the whole Old Testament. The only thing they needed to say was, and you know what? We just figured out that Jesus must be the Messiah. And that's why in verse 25 Jesus said this, And He said to them, Oh, foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? You remember He said the very same thing to His disciples? How long have I been with you? Did I not say that I had to suffer these things and then enter into my glory? Same kind of thing. Oh, and I love verse 27. And beginning with Moses, he might even might have even said, Do you remember Genesis 3.15? Do you remember the crushing of the head? He may have bruised my heel. But I have crushed his head. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And what a sermon! So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. I should say. Can you imagine? When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. By the way, that's the only way you can come to Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can come to Jesus Christ. Is if God opens your eyes. But as soon as they recognized him, what does the Bible say? And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? Oh, what it would be for every Bible teacher in the land to open up the Scriptures like that. 
That's the gospel message prophesied. He just opened up the Scriptures and He said, this is what the prophets have spoken. Verse 25. This is the the gospel message prophesied and Jesus was pronouncing it. That's that's verses 3 and 4 of Paul's message. Look at it, Romans 1, 3 and 4. It's pronounced by Paul too. Here now is the gospel message pronounced. This is what Paul is telling the Romans. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You're not going to hear that from the movie. You're going to walk out of that movie if you go. And by the way, nobody's telling you to go. You don't have to go. You won't hear that from the movie. Paul first tells us that God has a son. This is what somebody needs to explain to you. That this son was descended from King David according to the flesh. That This would confirm for us that Jesus must come through a Jewish lineage in order to qualify as Messiah, he is establishing this fact to the Roman hearers, probably a a majority of them Gentiles. Remember I told you that the Jews several years earlier had been expelled from Rome. A lot of them probably had been trickling back, but maybe a, a majority of them at this point were Gentiles. And he's saying... That Jesus had to be a Jew in the line of the Jewish lineage from King David. He's the promised fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Messiah would come through King David's loins. And further, when this good news of the King and His victory would be announced, it would first be pronounced to the Jewish people. You remember Matthew 121? And you shall call His name Jesus, and it is He who will save whom? His people from their sins. And that's why he says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first. And then to the Greek. He's come to save His people from their sins. All the promises to the Jews will be fulfilled in Him according to His flesh, His humanity, for He is David's greater Son That's absolutely crucial. It's a part of the gospel. And then he states further about this gospel message that Jesus was also declared to be the Son of God in power. According to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. That's parallel structure from what he's just said. It's just from another angle. He's just said that Jesus is the Son of God according to the flesh. That is King David's greater Son. And here he's saying Jesus has been enthroned with power as the Son of God who's been raised from the dead. He's Messiah because He's David's greater Son. And that means He's the Son of God. God the Father's Son. The Messiah. The Savior of the world. Our Redeemer. Because the Spirit of holiness 
through His resurrection from the dead, is enthroned with power. And because He's enthroned with power, that's why Paul ends this good news proclamation to the Romans by declaring that He is Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's why he ends this gospel proclamation, this message, with that phrase, Jesus Christ our Lord. I mentioned a moment ago that you go through the book of Acts and you see that that's what the apostles do. They reach back to these Old Testament scriptures, these Old Testament prophets, and that's what they say. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this for the sake of time. Acts 2.36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, that's Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You say, God the Father has made Him Lord and Christ? God has made Him Lord and Christ? What does that mean? He's made Him Christ? I thought He was Christ. He's made Him Messiah. He's made Him Lord. God made Him Lord. I thought He was Lord. I thought He was Lord in His essence. He is Lord in His essence. But He made Him Lord in His enthronement. He's declared Him. He's declared Him to the world. He is in His essence, but He's also declared Him to be that by virtue of His resurrection from the dead. You see it? That's why in Acts 13.33, he says he's declared him to be so by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. It's a declaration. It's a pronouncement. It's saying it is true by virtue of what's happening in space and time. Oh yes, God could just declare it in terms of a universal declaration from heaven. God could just say, I'm declaring to you from heaven that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. But He had to come. And He had to walk this earth. And He had to die a death. And He had to live a passion and a passion weak. And the passion of the Christ is that He did die that death, that agonizing death, that ignominious death, and the torture. And He did. But He was raised from the dead. And when He was raised from the dead, by the Spirit of holiness, either a reference to Christ Himself or the Holy Spirit, He was declared enthroned, pronounced in power, the Son of God in power to be what He is. He was declared to the world what He already is. Oh, what a message. And the Gospel message is is powered, verse 5. Look at it. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship, Apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. What name? Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the name. That's the name of Christ. He is our Lord. Christ is a title. Christ is a title, not a name, technically speaking. What is His name? His name is Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
And the obedience of faith, there might be two ways you could look at it. Subjectively, the obedience that flows from faith, or appositionally, the obedience that is faith, or it may be both. You say, well, what does it matter? Well, it's the idea that it is the obedience that flows from faith, or the obedience that which is faith, but the ultimate is that the obedience that is the content that flows from my declaration that I am leaning all of my life, my hope on Jesus Christ gives me the opportunity to declare that I am one of His followers, that He's my Lord. You heard that in the waters of baptism. And then it gives me a goal, a passion in my life. And what is that passion? To proclaim His name, Lord, among the nations. By the way, that's the goal of your life. If you're a Christian, that's the goal of your life. Listen to John Stott. The highest of missionary motives, listen very carefully, the highest of missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, verse 18, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. End quote. That's, that's it. For the glory of Jesus Christ. You say, that's the goal? That's it. That's what Paul says. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. That's it. For the sake of His name. Not the glory of my name. Not the glory of your name. Not even obedience to the Great Commission. Not even for the love of sinners who are themselves alienated and perishing. It is for the sake of His name. And what is the scope of it? So that His name would be named among all the nations. That's why we're having a missions conference next week. That's why you should be here. Every time the doors are open, so that you could learn how to proclaim Jehovah, the missionary God, for the sake of His name among all the nations. This is... This is why it's empowered. It gives you the obedience of faith rooted in the goal of the glory of Jesus Christ in the evangelization of the nations. And, and I ask you the question, so who are those who speak forth this message? Well, I say to you, it is the very ones who are most affected by it. It is the very ones who are the most affected by it. And who are those? Well, notice verse 6. Verse 6. It's the ones who are called. These are the Gospel Proclamation's members. Look at the, look at the descriptive elements picturing these believers that Paul says they are. Look at them. They're called, he says. Claytoy, it's, it's describing... The ones who are called. It's the very thing that he said about himself in verse 1. They're called by God. 
He says that you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful depiction of our union with Christ? Oh my. Oh my. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We're His possession. You see, if you are called to belong to Jesus Christ, you've been most affected by this calling, you'll want to tell others about how you've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. And the gospel members are also loved. Look at the first part of verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. You know, it's one thing to say that God has called you to Himself, as great as that is, but it's also a fantastic experience to know of the deep, deep love of God. Experientially. Do you know of that love? And not only that, but also to be called a saint who are loved by God and called to be saints. You know that at least 38 times, four other times in Paul's salutations, according to Doug Moo's counts, Paul speaks of believers as saints. And it's not so much that he speaks of them as saints in the sense of behavior as it is their status. Saints by status. Boy, look at that. He says they are called and loved and are saints. What a, what a beautiful pictorial description of believers. And one more. The gospel proclamations members are granted grace and peace. Look at what he says at the latter part of verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful way to end this gospel message section. And I ask you this morning. Have you this day received this grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you? Are you able even to call Jesus your Savior? Grace received and peace given can only come from a relationship established. Don't miss that. Grace received and peace given can only come from a relationship established. The Father gives the Son to those whom the Son receives. Listen to John 1.12. If you walk out of a theater... After having watched the Passion of the Christ, John 1.12 says, To all who did receive Him, that's Christ, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, can be born into it, nor of the will of the flesh. You can't wish it by willing nor of the will of man. It's not something someone else or mankind in general can will for you, but of God. God's the only one that can open the eyes of two disciples on the Emmaus Road. You can receive Jesus Christ right now. The good news of the gospel of God. If you believe in His name, His person, His work, 
accomplished upon the cross by trusting what He did there, repenting of your sins, confessing Him as Lord, and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. This is the true explanation of the passion of the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, You've given us a wonderful explanation of the Gospel in Paul's beautiful words here. Thank You for it. Thank You for challenging us with the Gospel according to Romans. Thank You that it is not some Johnny-come-lately religion of Paul. But it has been something tied long ago, even from eternity past through prophets in time, codified in the Scriptures, spoken of here in Romans. And so very applicable here even in the 21st century. I pray, Lord, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has been proclaimed in our hearing today. So that men and women, though they might see some dramatic pictorial depiction from actors on celluloid would hear a message of Christ preached because a message preached a hearing by faith Romans 10:17 Lord, open blind eyes and deaf ears to the good news of salvation in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.